Good morning, everyone. Um, that's everyone here and everyone that's going to listen to this as well. Um, you're welcome to part three of Journey Through the Epistles. And um, we're going into Galatians part two today. Um, so just by way of um, to go over what we're doing once again, we're looking through every epistle um by god's grace every saturday apart from book of revelations and um i will talk about that as time goes on maybe i'll do a brief commentary but not a verse the first exposition um and of course one of the ways to benefit from this um, would be to read beforehand what we're discussing or um yes actually that that's that's it and how it works is basically we're going to read i would explain um try to explain as many verses as i can and then at the end of each chapter i would pause to take reflections before uh, moving on so of course zoom rules if you ever have any questions um feel free to raise your hand or type it in chat or you could unmute yourself um, when you have a question so I think that that goes by way of introduction. We could start. Um, Abba, God, thank you for another day. Thank you for another um, time that we get to spend in your word. Thank you for the book of Galatians. Thank you for all that we learned last week. Thank you that we can be here again to dive even a step further as we explore um, and apply your word to our lives. I pray for understanding. I pray for clarity. I pray that there is um, there is wisdom and revelation in your word, and that everyone listening, whether now or in the recorded session, would learn from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hi, Miriam. How are you doing? Welcome. So I think we could just go right into it. Um, last week we looked at Galatians one and two, and um, we pretty much started off by talking about what are the first things to take note of whenever you start an epistle. So we looked at things like who wrote it, of course, but Paul or Saul. Um, who did he write it to? To the people in Galatia, which was a province. It was a group of churches in the region of Galatia. And then we started to dive even deeper to the meat of the discussion. Why exactly did he write Galatians? And the idea basically is um, there were people who went to these churches or people who rose among these churches um, after Paul had left physically and were insisting that unless you became a Jew, um, meaning you had to be circumcised, you had to eat um, the certain way, you had to do all those obey the Mosaic covenant, basically. Unless you did all that, um, you couldn't be saved. And I explained last week what made this important, right? Um, it was an essential. And I said, once, once it has to do with what Christ has done as regards salvation, then it's an important topic and any form of compromise on that issue is not tolerated, right? And so because of that purpose, he was trying to defend 
the integrity of the gospel to the people of Galatia. That, that framed his tone all throughout the letter. That framed the things he said, how fast he said it, the things he didn't say, right? I did. Welcome. And so he started off by just going straight into it. We looked at that last week in Galatians 1. There was no, oh, I've heard of your faith in, law, in the Lord and your love for all the saints. When I think about you, I lift up my voice and pray. He didn't even start with any of that. He just went straight into it. I'm surprised at what I am hearing. And once again, that was because of how important um, the issue on ground was. And it just goes to show us, even as believers today, the role of contending for the truth of the gospel. He moved on from that and he started to emphasize two things in particular, right? Um, last week, we, we talked about how he emphasized the authenticity of his apostleship, which we see in verses like verse 1, for instance, Paul, an apostle, not from men, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God, the Father who raised him from the dead. The second thing was the authenticity of his gospel, right? So not only was his role as an apostle to the Gentiles one that was given by God, but the message he preached among the Gentiles was also given by God. And so he says in verse 12, Galatians 1 verse 12, for I, let's start from verse 11. But I make known unto you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to any man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so what made both his um, apostleship and his gospel authentic, it was the fact that he was commissioned, or both were commissioned by God and not man. And so Paul takes out the first chapter of Galatians to emphasize this. God called me into to this ministry, not man. God gave me this message, not man. And so the reason he's going at great lengths to do all this is so that they would see that indeed the gospel he had preached was authentic, not what these um, false teachers were trying to do. And so another way he proves this, he goes to explain his conversion story. He goes on in chapter 2 to explain how the church leaders accepted both his apostleship and his message right so in chapter 2 we see things like um we see the word the truth of the gospel emphasized twice and i talked last week about how there is a place for us to contend for this message in galatians 2 verse 5 i love how paul says to whom we did not yield submission now that's talking about the false brethren in the previous chapter it says we didn't we didn't even give them chance for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. And then finally, last week, we started to talk about two mutually exclusive paths to justification. In verse 16, we saw how Paul is saying you have to choose one. You are either justified by the law or you are justified by faith in Christ. You can't choose both. You can't choose both, right? So Paul says pick. Pick your pick your path justification we looked at how through christ we are no longer to live to the law because we died to the law in christ uh, more so the jew right because the gentile was even never under the law 
in the first place. We'll talk more about that in Ephesians. Um, and finally, there was a strong emphasis in verse 21. It says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. And I said that was like our emphasis, right? If righteousness could be possible through the law, then Jesus didn't have to die. And it's something we should think about often. If it was possible for man to be righteous through the Mosaic Covenant, Christ did not have to die. So Jesus dying, and I explained, I gave the analogy um, that Pastor gave during the Rubicam. Jesus dying was something we could not, we needed it. It's not like someone helped you pick up a pen or someone um, did something you could have done for yourself. No. Jesus dying was necessary because outside his death and his the path to justification through faith in him, we don't have any other option. We're left with the law. And even for we that are Gentiles, like I said, unless your great-grandfather is Abraham or Moses or someone, first of all, you didn't have to become a Jew before you then try to keep the law and then you fail and realize that last, last, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, which Paul says in verse 15. So that's just a brief summary of everything we looked at last week. Of course, if you've not listened to it, make sure you get the recording so that you have more clarity and that you are on par with everything we've discussed. So this week, we're going into Galatians 3 and 4. And of course, it gets a lot more theologically dense, and I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm super excited for this session. All right, then. So let's, 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 let's go through it. Let's start. Galatians 3. I'm reading from the NKJV. Praise God. All right, verse 1. It says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you <laughs> that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. And of course, Paul opens up this chapter, you could say harsh, but it's because of the emphasis, because of the importance of what we've been discussing. He calls them foolish, and he's not insulting them, right? <laughs> um Foolish there, a pastor I love says foolish is a spiritual word, therefore. It just means anoetos. It means you're not using your mind. You're not using your mind. It's similar to what happened in Luke 24. Luke 24, a common passage to many. Luke 24 in verse 25. So this is Jesus talking to the people on the road to Emmaus. He says what? Oh foolish ones. <laughs> so Paul learned it from Jesus. Amen. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. So Jesus is saying, you guys are not using your minds and you are slow of heart, meaning you are dull of heart. You are not able to believe everything the prophets have spoken. Because if you took note of them and you put them together, you would have understood that the Messiah was to suffer and to enter his glory. So Jesus used that word there to, to denote a person or to denote the state of a mind of a person who isn't able to hold on to scripture, right? Or to, to apply scripture appropriately. And so Paul uses the same word for these Galatian people that even after Jesus was clearly portrayed among you as crucified, and that doesn't mean they saw 
just be, Paul didn't go and play a movie for them, Passion of the Christ. No, it means via my preaching, through the preaching of my gospel, Jesus was clearly shown to have been crucified and more so raised from the dead. And this just goes to, to buttress the same underlying theme of salvation that blessed are those who believe having not yet seen. You don't have to have been there when Jesus was crucified for the reality of the crucifixion of Jesus to be made clear to you. Paul wasn't. Amen. And so that's what Paul is saying. That you guys aren't using your minds. After I've labored to show you the crucifixion, the resurrection, its implication in your life, you are not, you're not applying your minds to these things. And he says, who has bewitched you that you should not obey what? The truth. Remember, we looked at that word twice last week. The truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel. In Galatians 2 verse 5, Galatians 2 verse 14. Right? And Paul is saying, you've been bewitched that you won't obey the truth anymore. In verse 2, he goes on, he says, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit? by the works of the law or by hearing of faith and this is synonymous with the gospel meaning when a person receives the gospel they receive what the spirit ephesians 1 says the same thing from verse 11 down it says did you receive the spirit by doing the works of the law or by the hearing of faith i love that phrase in there the hearing of faith basically saying a message that is received by faith so, if you got saved through faith, he now goes and say, are you so foolish? If you be gone in the spirit, are you now made, being made perfect by the flesh? And we can easily read this and say, ah, ah these Galatian people, shah. But pay, no, pay attention to its personal application in your life. Paul is asking them a question. You were saved by faith. Now you want to complete, in quotes, your salvation by adding, by making it complete. That's the word there, perfect, right? Telios. You want to make it complete as though something was missing. So it's the word epitelio. That's to, to, to bring it to completion, to execute completely, right? It says, do you want to do this by your own efforts? And like I said, there's a place for us to reflect on this. We ourselves as believers, even today in the 21st century, we are saved by grace. But oftentimes, we can fall back into a works mindset. And then Paul would need to say the same thing to us. Are we so foolish? Amen. That yes, you might have been saved. That yes, you were saved by good works. Sorry. God forbid. You were saved by faith. Right? But don't ever get to a place where subconsciously it starts to look as though you are depending on your good works to maintain your status or to renew your subscription, right? No man can be made perfect in the energy of the flesh. So we look at verse 3 and we don't just say, ah, can you imagine, oh foolish Galatians, ask yourself the same question. Are there times in my day-to-day -day activity where I start to evaluate myself, no longer in the light of the crucifixion of Jesus, but in the light of my personal efforts? Are there times where I start to see myself no longer as God sees me in Christ, but as I, as, um, as I evaluate my performance on a day-to-day -day basis? 
haven't begun in the spirit am i now trying to be made perfect in the flesh it's a question we should ask ourselves even today amen and now goes on have you suffered so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain so these people had even been persecuted for their faith so how would you go this far and now want to rely on your works that's basically he is very upset it's clear he now says in verse 5 therefore he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith and of course there have been um if you go through commentaries and um, theological explanations of this you would see slightly and i would explain why slightly different opinion some would say oh the he there applies to god some would say he there applies to the minister of the gospel it really doesn't change much because at the end of the day god does it through the man amen so the point there is even as the spirit is being supplied people work miracles among you right whether it's god he's doing it through the agency of man it is being done by faith as well so whether it's Paul working a miracle when he was there with them physically, he's not doing it based on requirements to the law. He's doing it by the hearing of faith. He now goes on and starts to explain. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now begin to pay attention. Paul is going to do a small Bible study with the Old Testament. So this is a Bible study within a Bible study. Amen. Hi Gideon. Welcome. Um, so, Paul takes us to Genesis, Genesis 15, verse 6. It says, Abraham believed God and he was accounted unto him for righteousness. Let's go there. Let's go there. I think it's a good practice that whenever an Old Testament scripture is quoted in your study of the, the New Testament, make, take out time to look through it so that you understand what is going on. If you remember in the first session, when we, when we introduced the idea of reading through the episode, we say one of the best things we can learn from studying the episodes is how to handle the Old Testament. Because when these guys, the apostles were teaching in their day, Paul would not quote from Galatians, right? It did not exist. So Paul would teach the same new creation realities, everything that we should be teaching now. Whatever you can teach from Galatians, whatever you can teach from Ephesians, the apostles taught the same things from Genesis to Malachi. And what that just means is that we as good Bible students must be able to handle the Old Testament in the same way. That whether it's the old, whether it's the new, we see Christ revealed in both of them. Amen. So Paul begins to do his exegesis and he takes us to Genesis 15 verse 6. So let's start from verse 5. It says, Then he brought him outside and said, Look now towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. This is God speaking to Abraham. It says, And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Genesis 15, 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he, referring to God, accounted it to him, referring to Abraham, to righteousness. And so, just like Paul, we shouldn't then read and start to see a funny story. Oh, God just took a man outside and um, he looked at the stars. Or you see a man who, um, he did this, he did that, he lied twice. Um, he gave birth to Ishmael, gave, he had, Ishmael had Isaac. And no, when you see that story, Paul wants you to see a man that despite his shortcomings was declared righteous by faith. 
and this was the first instance in scripture we see this mentioned of course people before abraham could have possibly been righteous because it's not like abel for instance is regarded as a man of faith in hebrews 11 but scripture didn't explicitly write it so if you if you if you start to study the new testament there's a way where um, the the authors or the the people in the epistles pay attention to when it was said in scripture or if it was said at all so for instance a person like melchizedek when he says he has no beginning or no end it doesn't mean he just appeared on the scene and he just vanished some people hold that but no it just means the bible or the scriptures the old testament didn't record his ancestry or his death so that's what it means um usually when you study maybe if i ever do journey through the old testament but when you study the old testament the way things are mentioned they are they are not just mentioned the old testament is not just a book of history no it is history told from a theological perspective and so things are written in certain ways for certain reasons and so it's no surprise that abraham was the first one that scripture records to have been counted righteous by faith and that's paul's point here he goes on in verse 7 to tell you the reason, right? Verse, it says, know that only, highlight that in your Bible, only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And this is a clear jab at both the Judaic teachers and the Jews that might want to be righteous by keeping the law among them. It says, only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. More on this on Romans. Let's go on, verse 8. It says, and the scripture foreseeing that God will justify the Gentiles by faith. You see what I'm saying? When it comes to the Old Testament, it is actually theology. It's just concealed. Remember what we said in the first, um, in our first teaching, that God was speaking. The plan of God was already being revealed in the Old Testament. It was only what? Sigao. It was silence. It was hidden, as it were. And now in Christ, it's been made clear. So the Old Testament, the New Testament, it really doesn't matter. The message was the same. The message was the same. And so even the Old Testament anticipated that God will justify Gentiles simply because they believe. It says what? It preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So again, it goes back to scripture. This is Genesis 12 verse 3, right? In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. I'm going to unpack this. You might wonder, how is this the gospel? At the end of this chapter, you see how there's no difference between this verse and John 3.16. So the gospel was preached to Abraham. And once again, you see what God is doing. He's setting up a system through Abraham such that all the nations of the world, Jews and Gentiles, will be blessed. He goes on, Paul goes on in verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Are blessed with believing Abraham. The, the, the point there is, because Abraham is the first mention of righteousness by faith, he becomes a template for everyone who would be justified by faith. And it comes as no surprise that the promise was made to his seed. So then, we, are, we identify. So when we say we are children of Abraham... This is where it comes from, in the fact in which the very way he was saved is the same way we are declared righteous. We, 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 we pattern our righteousness according to his, which is simply what? By faith. 
In verse 10, it goes on. For as many as of the works of the law are under the course, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things that are written in the book of the Lord to do them. And this is where the brilliance of Paul begins to shine. So he's taking it like a legal case. Or he's being very logical here. Remember in the last chapter, we talked about how these are two mutually exclusive um, paths. You can either choose to be justified by the law or you can choose to be justified by faith. Choose your choice, right? And now he begins to say, okay, fine. If you do want to be justified by the law, here is how it would affect you. The first thing he says, same from the scripture. The first thing he says is what? The law will condemn you. If you do not completely obey it. He gets that from Deuteronomy 27 verse 26. So this is after Paul had, sorry, Moses, right? Moses had written or read out the, the, the law. And Moses says in verse 26, Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the works of the law. And all the people say what? Amen. So they agreed to that. In verse 11, he says, But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. He brings in another point, also an exegesis from the Old Testament, that since Habakkuk 2 verse 4, we already have that template, that it is by faith that people will live. It is by faith that people will live. That's what it means, the just shall live by faith. So people will be declared just because they have faith and therefore they would live. He now goes to say in verse 12, the law is not of faith. So if the just will live by faith and the law is not of faith, then the just will not live by the law. Again, none of this, he's not quoting Romans, he's quoting Habakkuk and Deuteronomy. In verse 12, the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. That's Leviticus 18 verse 5. Leviticus 18 verse 5. The Lord speaking, he says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he will live by them. I am the Lord. So even in the Old Testament, there are two different parts. There is a way in which you can live by the law, you can choose to be a just you can say for you you can say oh my own is the just shall live by the law but there's also the just shall live by faith he's trying to paint that contrast that they've always been opposed they've always been opposed so don't forget what we've been doing so far paul is trying to present the authenticity of his gospel that faith in jesus is enough First of all, he has alluded to the fact that God gave him the message. That's the first proof of its authenticity. The second one was that what? The church leaders acknowledged it. We looked at that in the early verses of Galatians 2. And now finally, right, he's saying his final point is that the scriptures taught it. Of course, you know that when making a case, especially in, in, um, in the early church days, they'll say, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every truth be established. So Paul has gone, he said God, he has used God as his first point of authenticity. He uses the church leaders and finally he points to God. So you choose. Um, so the point is that it is not a foreign concept. God validates this message. The church leaders acknowledge it. Even scriptures taught it. So wherever you stand, 
The point is that this has always been the way. Life through the law can only come through total obedience. So you choose. Am I going to be a man justified by the law? Or am I going to be a man justified by faith? In verse 13, he goes on. He's still going in the Old Testament. Christ has redeemed us from the course of the Lord, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. I want you to pay attention more so. A lot of these things might not be new to you. The idea of law and grace and faith. But pay attention to the way Paul uses the Old Testament. Again, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 21 verse 23. He says, His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall bury him that day, so that you don't defile the land which your Lord, your God, is given to you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Is accursed of God. So it comes as no surprise. Paul, Paul is reflecting on this and says, hmm, Jesus was hanged. Therefore, Jesus voluntarily made himself a curse that we will not be under the curse of the Lord that he mentioned in verse 10. So this is especially good news for the Jew that was born into the law and so was under the curse of the law by birth. And he says, God or Jesus came into the law to redeem people that were in the law. Does that make sense? So the cost that should have been on me because I could not keep all the requirements of the law, Jesus, by the same law, fulfilled it. He, he, did, he lived a sinless life. He was the actual only person that could have been justified by works. Right? And then he became a curse for me or for the Jew, rather. He now says that the blessing of, the, of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So in verse 14, he now goes on to start to expound on what he said in verse 8, the gospel that was preached to Abraham. He says the blessing of Abraham came through Christ. What is that blessing? He says the promise of the Spirit through that is Abraham's blessing. When we sing Abraham's blessing in our mind, we've been singing it since primary school. This is the blessing of Abraham. The promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, let's start to, I told you at the end of the day, you start to see how there's no difference between Galatians 3.8 and John 3.16. So, so far, what do we have? In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So far, we have in you, all the nations, referring to Jews and Gentiles, shall be blessed, meaning what? Shall receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Amen. Or shall be saved through faith. Let's go on. Verse 10. It is for as many as are of the works of the law. Oh no. Sorry. <laughs> verse 15. I wanted to go back. But from verse 10 to 14, you, you, I hope you paid, paid attention to all that Paul has done. From just the scriptures alone, he painted that number one, what? People under the law are under a curse because they are not, unless they are able to meet up with every demand of the law. Verse 11, he goes on to say that no one, even the scriptures recognize that at the end of the day, no one will be able to keep the demands of the law. So it already anticipated and made sure it said what? The just would live by faith. In verse 12, he now goes on to say, the law is not the by faith there because there is a clear opposition to the path of justification through the law and through faith. In verse 13, he now goes on to say, that curse 
that would come upon the man who isn't able to do all the things in the law, Jesus bore that curse. Amen. So both Jew and Gentile are free from the curse of the law to live for God through faith in Christ. Amen. So let's go on Galatians 15. It is 3.15 rather. I speak in the manner of men, meaning I'm about to use a human analogy. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Right? It says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Of course, we've looked at what those promises are. It says, he does not say unto seed as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, which is Christ. Again, I said we're entering a Bible study within a Bible study. And what that just goes to show you is that when believers start to act in weird ways, or start to talk or do certain things, or start to believe certain things, what is the solution? The Word of God. The Word of God. So the Galatians are starting to... to, to to act beside themselves. What does Paul quickly do? I may not be able to come to you yet in person, but at least would have small Bible study. Because the word is what changes or what, what changes the heart of a believer. The word is what works. So you see the same thing in First Corinthians. These are people who are sleeping, um, who are, who are um, committing sexual immorality. What does Paul start to do? He does a little Bible study. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. That is how we handle inconsistencies in the church. We preach the word. We teach the word of God. Amen. Amen. So even if it's in your own life personally and you are seeing inconsistencies, go back to the word. You may just not be using your mind, like Paul said in Galatians 3 verse 1. Go back to the word. Amen. So, Let's go to, so Paul is quoting from Genesis 22, 17 to 18. Um, it says, In blessing I'll bless you, multiplying I'll multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, as the sand of the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. Verse 18, which is Paul's emphasis. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So, Paul's point is that already, even from the Old Testament, God anticipated a seed. Not seeds, but a seed. A seed, which was Christ. So let's, let's examine it again. Remember what was the gospel that was preached? In you, meaning in your seed, through Jesus, all the nations, which is Jews and Gentiles, shall be blessed. That is, receive salvation through faith. So basically what God was telling Abraham was through Jesus, Jews and Gentiles would receive salvation through faith. Amen. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his begotten son, which is the seed, that whosoever, right, Jew or Gentile, all the nations of the earth shall believe in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life, shall receive salvation through faith. So what is the emphasis or what makes up the gospel? Number one, through Jesus. Number two, it's available for all. Number three, it's received through faith. So that's why Paul will consider that message. In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. A gospel proclamation. Because in it, it has number one, the promise will come through Christ, right? Number two, it will be available for all. 
And number three, it will be received by faith. Amen. So let's go on, verse 17. I hope that's clear. It says, And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant which was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. Let me explain what Paul is saying here. And I, I love this analogy so much. If I promise you, or if, let's say I have a son, and I promise my son that, son, next week Friday, I'm going to buy you a bicycle. Right? And he's happy. Oh, my dad is going to buy me a bicycle next Friday. And then I now come, today is Saturday, right? And I come on Monday or on Tuesday and I say, you know what? If you can get straight A's, then I will buy you the bicycle. Even in natural terms, that would be very unfair because I'm changing my words. Originally, the promise was based on nothing. I just woke up and said, I will get you a bicycle. So it had nothing to do with my son, nothing to do with his conduct. I made him a promise. I can't come after and attach that promise to a condition. That unless you get straight A's, you won't get this bicycle. That is exactly what Paul is saying here. That once a covenant has been confirmed, you can't annul it or add to it. And so if God promised Abraham that through Jesus, men, everyone, Jew and Gentile, will be declared righteous by faith, the law can now come 430 years later and say, you know what? God changed his mind. That thing that was meant to be by faith, it's now unless you keep the law. So his point is that the law was never given as a, as a means to that promise. It was never given as a pathway to righteousness by faith. No, that one came through promise. So that's what he's saying. Does that make sense? In verse 18, he says, If the inheritance is of the law, meaning if what was promised to Abraham is now attached to the obedience to a law, then it is no longer a promise. Right? I've slid my son. I'm no more I'm, I'm an unfair dad. Something that he was excited about by sheer promise. Now it's based on his performance. And he's saying the law, if that is what you think the law is doing, then it's contradictory. It says it's no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. The question then is if the law is no law is was never given as a means to righteousness by faith, why was it then given? And Paul anticipates this question in verse 19. It's something he would do often. He would ask a question that he expects the reader to have and go ahead to answer it. In verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? So pay attention. It says, it was added because of transgression. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Pause. So now... Paul is basically answering your question. If the law has nothing to do with the fulfillment of the promise, why, did, why was it given? And Paul begins to explain. He explains two things in this verse. Number one, the law had a purpose. Number two, the law had a duration. I'll take that again. The law had a purpose and the law had a duration. Right? It's the common, common phrase we know. When the purpose of a thing is not known abuse is inevitable it's no surprise that many people have abused the use of the law today and it's because they never took out time to understand what the purpose of the law was 
Paul says clearly, God made the promise by faith. It was never going to be a means through which the promise of Abraham would be achieved, which is righteousness by faith. The purpose of the law was given, or basically says the law was given because people sinned. And I'll explain this more in subsequent verses. So the purpose of the law was what? It had something to do with sin, right? And the duration was until the seed came. Amen. He now says it was even given through the hands of a mediator. But a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. What he's basically saying is that the law required a mediator between both God and the Israelites. So if you read back the, the first five books of the Bible, you will see that back and forth. So God, Moses will read the law, the Israelites will say, oh, I agree. Moses will sprinkle blood and all of that. So the point was, it was a two-way thing. It was like a, it was a mutual agreement. It was a contract. It was mediated between two parties. But a promise is usually between just one party. When I promise my son, I'm going to buy you a bicycle. It has nothing to do with my son. The fulfillment of that promise is entirely dependent on me. So Paul just goes on to explain even more with that analogy. It's, it's, there was only one party required for the promise. But the law was required two parties. So it can't be the thing that God was talking about. That's basically what he's saying. In verse 21, he now says, is the law then against the promises of God? So if we're saying that the, prom- the promises were going to be achieved without the law, is the law then some form of contrast or some form of contradiction? He says, certainly not. For if there had been a law which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. This is just him saying the same thing again that he said in the previous chapter. If righteousness could have come through the law, Christ died in vain. The point there basically was the law was never to give life. So it's not like it's a contradiction or God was giving options or God was changing his mouth. No. Both the law and the promise of salvation were from the same source. So they can't stand against each other. If there is a contradiction, it's because people have missed the purpose of the law. Amen. So that's the point there. He's saying if there was a, if there was ever a law that could have given life or that could have stood as a fulfillment of that promise, then that would have been the way through which it would come. It says in verse 22, but the scripture has confined. That word there, sunkleo, right? I don't speak Greek, but amen, we'll try. It basically means to shut together, to embrace, to, to lock everyone. The idea is to lock everybody in the, same, in the same room. It says scripture, referring to the law, has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. Now we're starting to unpack what Paul meant by it was given because of transgression. So basically it's saying the law has locked people up in sin. So to the Jews, they can see that they can't obey the law, therefore they are perpetually under sin. For the Gentile, I think it's even worse because you didn't even have the law to start. Talk less of having it and then not being able to keep it. It says in verse 23, before faith came, we were kept under God. It's the same word confined in the previous verse. We were kept under God by the law, kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. So once again, you see purpose and duration. It says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Pay attention to that word tutor. Paul is using another human analogy. I will try to pronounce this if I butcher it. 
I apologize in advance. It's the word Pahidagogos, right? I can't, the spelling is P-A-I-D-A-G-O-G-O-S. Pay no attention to my pronunciation. The point is, it's an ancient Greek word to, deter, to denote, it's a role in, in, in a house for someone who, it's a servant whose office it was to take the children to school, right? So what that, that word tutor there was someone who every day would take the, tu- the, the child and walk him to the synagogue or to wherever he'll be trained and then go back home. Similar to how some of us, maybe we're going to go, oh, quickly take my son to school, something like that, right? That's pedagogos, right? That's what Paul is saying. So the law was that it took the Jews by the hand to lead them to Christ. And now that Christ has come, verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. Do you see why he now says sons of God? Because that's what the word in verse 24, tutor, was used for. Of course, then because of the patriarchal society, it was only sons that were actually um, publicly educated. So he says, the same, so he's, he's continuing that same frame of thought. The law was your tutor. It was to take you by the hand to lead you to Christ. It says, you are all sons. You are all sons. You are all sons. Through faith in Christ. For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Have put on Christ. You can highlight that word, put on. It's the word enduo. It means to literally wear something upon you like a garment. So it's the idea of like you are, you are clothing yourself with something. And so that's the idea Paul is trying to communicate. It's like camouflage, right? The same way you say wolf in sheep clothing. We are men and women in Christ's clothing. Amen. So we've put on Christ. Faith in Christ is like wearing new clothes. So when they see you, they see Christ. And that's why in the next verse he now goes on to say what? There is neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free male or female for you are all one in christ why are we all one in christ because we have all put him on so we only so the world should only see christ god sees christ there's no other distinction and that's the the message of unity he's painting there we've all put on Christ. It's like school uniform, right? Where you go to, everybody's wearing the same thing. So you can say, ah, you're all members or students of this school. We have all put on Christ. We've all put on Christ. And that's why he goes in the next verse. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Because originally, if you've been following the thought in the chapter, Christ is that seed but we did these guys. We've put him on. So we are we are we are tapping into or we identify with that with 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 the promise that was given to the seed. In Christ we've become partakers of God's spirit. So that was how God intended that the whole world was going to be blessed through one seed. How? We'd all put him on. We'd all put him on. And so through that, there will be no distinction. There will be no segregation. There will be no other requirement. We all identify with Abraham's seat. Amen. 
So to refresh and to summarize the entire chapter again, the gospel being preached to Abraham was what? In you or through your seed, in your seed, right? Through Jesus, all the nations, meaning both Jews and Gentiles, shall be blessed. That is, receive the promise of the Spirit, the promise of salvation through faith. How? By faith. Meaning we would all put him on. That seed, that person that was that God promised to Abraham would do something that would enable everyone of every nation to identify with the blessing. That is the gospel that was preached to Abraham. Did Abraham possibly know the full details of this? Not necessarily. Not necessarily, right? Revelation was progressive through the Old Testament. So maybe not. He might not have known that, oh, Christ, through Christ, the nations, Jews and Gentiles, ah, so they would know. But he shall knew that through him, God was going to provide someone who would be a blessing to the whole world. And because he believed that, he was declared righteous. We today, because we believe in what that seed has done, we identify with the faith of Abraham. Amen. Amen. All right. So, any questions so far? Before we move on to the next chapter, I'd like to take a few minutes. Just any question, any thoughts before we go on to chapter 4 and then we'll probably call it a day. Is it all good? Leave a thumbs up. If you could put it in the chat. Are we good to go? Or is there anything you want me to, to go over again? Awesome. I'm seeing thumbs up. Cool. 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 All right. So let's go on. Galatians 4 verse 1. So he goes on. Um, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. So now he's starting to, he's, he's going through that analogy. He's diving even deeper into it. So he's saying, yes, there might be a heir. What does a heir mean? A heir is basically someone who has an inheritance. Someone who has an inheritance. So for instance, when you see in the Bible, it says we are all sons of God. It's not, um, it's not gender bias. No, the word there, son, kuyos, just means someone who has an inheritance. In their day, that was passed down through the son because of the culture they lived in. And that's why it's used of the analogy of us inheriting the promises of God in Christ. So it's not a gender term, right? We are all sons of God, meaning we all have the inheritance that was promised to God's seed. Amen. So this is the heir. As long as he is a child, he does not differ at all from his slave, though he is master of all. But he is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Paul is simply just buttressed so that without a shadow, this is what you call beyond reasonable doubt. That is what Paul is doing here. He's using yet another analogy that yes, in the house, the son or the child might have access. All this inheritance might be stored up for him. But until he comes of age, he can't receive that inheritance so he's using more and more analogies to under to help you understand what is he buttressing number one the purpose of the law number two the duration of the law so once again he goes on to say that until the time appointed by the father the law is a guardian the law is a guardian this is in verse three even so we when we were children we were in bondage under the elements of the world of the world referring to the law 
and its ordinances. These were things that could only help on a, on a physical level and ultimately pointed to a spiritual reality in Christ. They could never make anyone righteous. They were simply guardians. They were simply guardians. It says they were in bondage. <laughs> Remember the word scripture has confined. So it goes on and says they were in bondage under the elements. And what you would notice, because usually the word elements is also applied to Gentile religions, pagan religions in those days that had no reality or no substance of God in them. In both cases, whether it was through the law or through the Gentile practices, you would notice that the, de the devil took advantage of these elements to enslave men. To enslave men. And you'll see that in the course of this chapter. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Amen. Glory to God. So again, it goes back to what he was saying in the previous chapter. I told you Christ was born under the law to redeem people who were under the law. So he was born an Israelite. He was born a descendant of Abraham, born into the law. And so, of course, the demands of the law was also binding on him. But because he fulfilled the law... Not only that, he took upon himself the course of the law. He was able to then redeem those who were under the law. Like I said, this would be very good news if you were Jewish. I don't believe anyone here is, unless I'm wrong. He says that we might receive the adoption as sons. Of course, the reason he's saying this is because the word redeem means to buy something back. To rescue, to buy up. So he's saying he did that, that we might become or that we might receive the adoption. Basically, Christ purchased our adoption as sons. It is that because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying out, Abba, Father. This echoes up Romans 8 beautifully. It now says, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. Remember I told you the idea of sonship simply means inheritance. What did we inherit in Christ? We inherited the Spirit of God. We inherited the Spirit of God. Ultimately, our glorified bodies, but most importantly, the Spirit of God. It says, if it's, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Let's go on. It says, but then indeed... When you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not God. So now he's pointing, he's talking to the Gentiles. But now after you have known God, or rather you are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? So remember what I said, that there is an idea in which it enslaves, or it forces you to live or to keep practicing things that really have no life in them. In verse 10, it says, you observe days, you observe months, you observe seasons, you observe years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. And you start to see Paul's heart really come out in the next couple of verses. Basically, from verse 10, it's still the same message. Any physical practice tied to salvation would only bound you. It cannot free you to live for God. It says, brethren, in verse 12, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. Meaning, I, I, I lived as though I was a Gentile. I lived as one who was without a law. 
Paul talks more about this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20 to 22. It says, And to the Jews, I became as a Jew. 1 Corinthians 9, 20 to 22. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. But to those who are without the law, as without law, not being without law towards God, but under law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And that's what Paul is saying here. I became just like you. I ate like you. I lived among you. And now I'm urging you to become like me. What does he mean by that? Free from any physical demands required of salvation. He says, I was, I gave all that up even when I lived among you. Now, you shouldn't want to go back to those very things that you once casted away. Become once again like me. It says you have not injured me <laughs> at all. I think it's, you didn't wound me. It's basically saying that it's not a personal matter. Right? None of this is, you've not done me any personal wrong. Ultimately, everything I'm saying is for your own good. In verse 13, it says, You know that because of physical infirmity, I preach the gospel to you at first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Jesus Christ himself. So we get the, we get the narrative that, oh, Paul probably went to these people and he was sick when he went there. And there's a lot to learn from this, especially how we view ministers of the gospel, most of our ministry gifts. These are people that God has sent to bless us, see them as such. So here we see a Paul who was probably not in um, physical or topmost health. Of course, he, he talks more about this on how he has gone through perils, hungers, fastings. He had been flogged. He had been stoned. So it wouldn't be a surprise if he went to the, some of these churches and he wasn't doing so well. Right? And he says, you did not look at that as a reason not to receive me. He says, you received me as an angel, in fact, as Jesus himself. And it's the same thing today in our practice. It may be your brother that is preaching or that is teaching. Or more in that office, he's not more your brother. You must see him beyond that. You must, we must realize or we must recognize people for the virtue or the spiritual virtue that they, or the position they hold in our lives. Amen. So that's just by the way. That's by the way. We'll see more on that as we go on. Um, in Timothy and the likes. But it says, when, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. A couple of theologians have used this to, to say that, okay, maybe Paul's infirmity was that he had an eye problem. It's not necessary. You don't have to assume that, right? See, Paul doesn't leave us to assume that. And we simply don't have enough historical information. So it's not completely necessary. The point is that they were willing to go the extra mile just for his sake. That's to show you how much love they received him with. It is, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously caught you, verse 17, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always and not only when I am present with you. What is Paul saying? He's talking about these Judaizers, these people that are now preaching that unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. He says that they want to what? Exclude you. And it's amazing. I, I remember reading through this and 
It's easy that you can easily gloss over this verse, but pay attention to that. It says they want to exclude you. And today we still see many traits of that because it is human nature to gain glory or to pride in exclusivity. Oh, it's an inside club. Oh, um, it's inside gist, inside info. It's only for a limited few. So there's always that pride in, oh, I can get it, but others cannot. And so the cross becomes an insult to the Jews because their very identity was built on exclusivity. That, ah, we are God's chosen people. We are the ones God called. It's not the rest of the world. Which was also wrong because that was never the intention. They just built a wrong notion. But the idea was, even today, you can still examine your life. The gospel is for all. The gifts of God are for all. God doesn't do um, it's for an inner circle. No, no, no. It's for all. And so be be very careful. Even when, for for instance, I remember there was a point where, when you start to learn truth, you start to feel that exclusivity. That ah, yes, I'm a word man. You people don't know what you are talking about. Something. No, it's wrong. God wants everyone to know the truth. God wants everyone to be grounded in scripture. There is no exclusivity here. God wants everyone to walk in the gifts. So even in your own personal life, check it. If you are the only one that is proficient in the things, in like word of care among your friends, and you are starting to gain some form of satisfaction or validation, Omar, you are missing it too. You are missing it. God wants everyone. Even ministry gifts, he says what? That we may all, we may all come to the knowledge of the truth. We may all. So there's no exclusivity here. That's, that's the message. And so the message that these Judaizers were preaching to these guys were something that would exclude them. Oh, once again, you have to be circumcised. So you can look at someone that is and say, look at you. Can you imagine? You think you are following Jesus and you have not even become circumcised. Come on, get out of here. That was the idea. So pay attention. It's human nature to gain pride or to glory in exclusivity. But that's not how it works with God. So whether it's in revelation in the word, whether it's in the gifts of the spirit, your desire should should be that everyone comes to truth. Your desire should be that everyone is proficient. We should be able to gather and we're not looking for one emoji anywhere to, to be the one that would be dropping prophecy. While the rest of us say, I receive, sir, I receive. Yes, right on, Papa. <laughs> Everyone is called to these things. Everyone is. Amen. They say it's good to be zealous in a good thing. Meaning, if it was something, it was even a good thing that these guys were trying to, to cajole you to do, I would have been glad. But unfortunately, it's not. In verse 19, it says, My little children. And you can just sense the depth of emotion that Paul is just narrating here. He says, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again, until Christ is formed in you. And it just shows you the pain and the urgency through which Paul is writing. He he almost cannot believe his ears. After laboring with you guys for so long, you are now turning away to back to Judaism. That even those that were under the law, remember in Acts, it says that why would you burden us with ordinances that even our forefathers were not able to bear you you now want to take it up voluntarily Habba. it says i labor again until christ is formed in you how is he laboring again 
by reminding them about the basics. When he says until Christ is formed in you, Christ there is synonymous with the gospel. It's the same way Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3, when Moses is read, referring to the books of Moses. So the same way until Christ is formed in you, until the truths of the gospel in Christ are formed or is formed once again in you. That's what Paul is saying. And so Paul is basically saying, I'm finding myself having to teach you these basics once again. I'm finding myself having to explain the very things that you once knew. I'm finding myself having to establish Christ in your heart once again. It says, I would like to be present with you now to change my tone, but for I have doubts about you. So Paul is clearly pinned. This is, it's a serious issue. It's a serious issue. And like I said last week, we should react the same way when the integrity of the gospel is being compromised. You can't just sit back and say, mm, let everybody do what they want. No. No. As, as far as it touches the integrity of the gospel, it should bother you. It should bother you. Let's start to wrap up. Verse 21. It says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law. He's going back again to this. To the same law thing he has been he has been talking about. Do you not hear the law? So he's about to explain even the Old Testament yet again. That even if you want to be on that, he has, don't forget he has already gone through different things in the previous chapter. He has explained how through the law shall no flesh be justified. Through the law you are cursed if you don't keep everything. Through the law um, you have to obey everything for you to be declared just. He goes on again. So even if you want to go, don't you hear the law? Verse 22. It is written that Abraham had two sons. One by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was, meaning um, he had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, right? The bondwoman Hagar, the free woman Sarah. It says, he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. He of the free woman through the promise so pay attention he is basically okay let me go on but says of which things are symbolic for these are the two covenants the one from mount sinai which gives birth to bondage which is hagar for this is for this hagar is mount sinai in arabia and corresponds to jerusalem which now is and is in bondage with her children but the jerusalem above is free which is mother of us all let me explain so he paints the picture of Abraham once again. Like I said, after you read Galatians, the next time you read the story of Abraham, these are the things that should pop out. Of course, we can learn from the stories in the Old Testament, right? We can learn from the perseverance of Job. We can learn from the faithfulness of Joseph. We can learn from um, how David stood up for God. But more importantly is the theological message behind it's all. And so in Abraham, we've seen the gospel being preached when God called him out to be a blessing to the whole world. Amen. And now once again, we're seeing the story of Isaac and Ishmael being symbolic of righteousness by faith and righteousness by works. So he says one of them was born according to the flesh, meaning one, don't forget, God promised, let's, let's cast our mind back to the story. God promised Abraham that in, in, there'll be a, you have a son um, through him, eventually all the nations of the earth will be blessed and all of that. And Abraham and 
Sarah started to lose patience, and what happened? They gave her, um, Sarah gave him Hagar, right, for her, for him to sleep with and give birth to Isaac. I'm sorry, to Ishmael. That's how Ishmael was gotten. So, what was Ishmael symbolically? Ishmael was an human attempt to bring about the promise of God. I'll take that again. Ishmael represents a human attempt to bring about the promise of God. And that's what Paul calls the law, right? It's labor in the flesh. It's you trying to use a physical, you are trying to attempt in your own ability to bring about a promise that was going to be worked through by God. And that's what he means by he was born according to the flesh. So Ishmael represents all those Ishmael represents all those that would try to achieve or attain righteousness or the promise of God by their own efforts. Isaac, on the other hand, would represent all those that would attain the promises of God by simply believing. Amen. I hope that is clear. And that's why he now says, Mansanai, which gives birth to bondage. Of course, we've looked at what bondage and liberty is in the past two weeks. Bondage referring to the law, which of his own strength does not give you the ability to live above it. But it simply serves as a reminder that you are under the law and you can't keep it. More on that on Romans. But the idea is, those who are in Jerusalem or those who have stuck with the law, are in bondage because in a constant striving to use your own efforts to achieve the promises of god what you keep finding is failure after failure after failure after failure and it's no surprise paul uses the analogy of someone in bondage because think about it if someone is confined remember we looked at um, scripture confined all under sin if someone is in bondage or someone is confined they can't free themselves if they could, they would have done it already. They need external help. They need external help. And that's the message Paul is painting. That these people are in bondage because they keep trying the same thing. The only thing they know how to do is try in their own efforts. And it yields no result. In verse 26 says, but the Jerusalem above is free. I've explained what that freedom is. It's freedom from the bondage of the law. It's freedom from... Um, the, the bondage of having to depend on your own efforts to justify you before God. It says, is the mother of us all. Hallelujah. 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 Say after me, I'm the child of the free woman. Glory to God. I'm a child or I'm the child of the free woman. Hallelujah. It says, for it is written... Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than those or than she who has a husband. So once again, he's saying it. There are more in the family of faith than even the Jews themselves. There are more who have trusted on God's ability than even those who have labored in the flesh. At the end of the day, the ability of God triumphs over all the efforts of the flesh. Glory to God. It goes on, it says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, we are children of promise. I'm a child of promise. Hallelujah. 
I depended on no effort of my own. I depended on no effort of my own. I was not born according to the flesh. I was born according to the power of God. That's what John says in John 1, 12, verse 3. Right? He says, sorry, John 1, verse 12 and 13, rather. He says, as many as received him, to them he gave right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I'm a child of the free woman. I was born of the will of God. I was born of promise. Flesh could not achieve this. No human orchestration could achieve this. I'm the child of the free woman. Hallelujah. It says, but as he who was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. And so Paul is saying what is happening was also symbolically represented in Ishmael and, and Isaac. If you remember the story, Ishmael started to mock Isaac, or that's the, the, the idea we get, and Abraham had to cast them out. Right? And that's the same thing. He's saying those who are under the law, those who are children of the um, born according to the flesh, meaning people who are still try, trying to attain righteousness with God according to their own efforts, they still persecute the free children till today, which was what was happening even in Paul's day. And funny enough, if you look closely, it still happens now. When you see people preaching the message of salvation through faith, you would notice this, the, 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 the cutback or the, the pushback they usually get is from people who somewhere in their minds still feel there are things they need to do to end God's salvation. To end God's salvation. It's still the same thing till today. It serves as some form of irritant for whatever reason that you, you are still trying on your own efforts. And someone is now saying, oh, Christ has done it all. You are now, you are now offended. <laughs> you are now attacking the person, calling the person, all sorts of things. The truth is many of us will probably have come to truth sooner, if not for the things we heard about people who preached this message when we were growing up. I don't want to call names. But many of the people who once taught or who taught the truth of the gospel, yes, there may be things that may not have been correct or there may be things they might need to work on. But many of these people, look at them in mainstream Christian, at least for me growing up, I didn't even bother listening to these people because I had so many things. Ah, they're heretics. Oh, this and that. Ah, they will drag you to... Haba. Haba. <laughs> it is well. Anyways, let's go on. It says... What does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, but the son of the bondwoman shall not be here with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Hallelujah. We are people who were not born of our own ability. We were not born by striving for righteousness in our own efforts. No. We were born of promise. We simply believed and now we have put on Christ. Hallelujah glory to god so let's by way of recap let's just let's just go right again verse 4 sorry chapter 4 paul once again uses analogy after analogy to to to, to show what was the purpose of the law it was to confine all under sin it was to lead men to christ meaning under the law all you get is a sense of your own imperfections the law demands that everyone must obey to the latter unless you are under a curse 
or rather if not you're under a cross and then paul says all of this served to lead people to lead people so the law had a purpose it was not in contrast with the promise of god it was not given as a requirement no god's way to salvation was always going to be by promise it's not a new testament thing no since abraham even before the law the promise of righteousness by faith was already made available and so we in christ have come under that promise and that's why paul would say in philippians we put no confidence in the flesh hallelujah because we can see that by the power of the flesh shall no man be justified shall no man be justified he went on to then use yet another analogy sarah and hagar isaac and ishmael so all we've been seeing so far in the first four chapters is still the same message hit back time and time again that you cannot be righteous by the law i'm sure pretty much everyone listening to this so far you probably already know this but it's important you take it in again you cannot be justified in your own effort like it was never even an option it's not that oh jesus's way is easier no jesus way is the only way it's the only way i loved um, um a commentary on, on what jesus said in mark he says narrow is the way because jesus is the way so when jesus said the way is narrow that leads to eternal it's because it's only through christ that was the only that's the only provision god has given if you choose any other way <laughs> wherever you end up <laughs> you take right that that you just have to live with it there is no other way to attaining righteousness through faith than through the promise of christ glory to god hallelujah so before we round up any thoughts any questions anything you want me to go over again and then we'll call it a day thumbs up if it's clear or you could okay yep 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 you're right okay any any anything you want me to go over again all right awesome so so far we've looked at why it makes no sense to go to the law or to see the law as a means through salvation and paul paul not only says that he says you can't even combine it and if you remember when i started i said we can read and say ah this galatians oh foolish galatians i'll be chanting with paul oh foolish galatians oh foolish. look at your own life and ask are there days that i am foolish <laughs> are there days that i try to be made perfect in the flesh are there days where yes i realize that god saved me but i'm saying if i can just read my bible maybe god would like me a little more if i can just do this maybe god would love me just a bit more at that point tap yourself in the head and say oh foolish daniel <laughs> right or call your name oh foolish haven't begun in the spirit do you now want to be made perfect in the flesh or by the flesh so yes there is still a place for good works yes there's still a place um for holding fast to the message of the gospel yes there's still a place for for integrity and conduct and character and we're going to look at that paul never lets his readers go off without thinking that now that i'm saved i just live how i want remember i taught you liberty is not liberty to do as you please it's liberty to live for god and so in the next chapter galatians 5 
call would start to answer a question that many of these people would have and many people still have today. So they'll say, oh, Apostle Paul, no wahala. I get you, you're an apostle. You've proven it. Yes, righteousness is only by faith. Thank you. However, in quote, are you now saying we can live anyhow? Or how then should we live if we are not under the Lord? I mean, the only way we ever knew what to do was by the Lord. Are you saying we should just live however we feel? Paul anticipates this question and chapter 5 and 6 goes on to explain this in greater detail. So, on that note, I would see you next week, same time. We are finishing Galatians by the grace of God. Hallelujah. So, we've officially almost completed one epistle. Um, so, let's, let's, let's just pray. Our Father and our God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for um, the book of Galatians. Thank you for all we've learned so far. Thank you for the message preserved and handed down to us thousands of years later that we can read and reflect just like the Galatian, the Galatian church did that indeed we could not have done this on our own efforts we could not have done this through any effort of the flesh it was either your way or no way thank you once again for the promise thank you for sending your son thank you for your sacrifice Thank you because we now have access. We put on Christ, sons, heirs of salvation. There is no Jew, no Greek, no Gentile. No, We've all become men and women who are found in Christ. Thank you because this was always your intention and now we can get to rejoice in your salvation. I pray that there is grace for us to live out every day, to hold fast to the integrity of your word and to live every day knowing that we are children of the free woman of the free woman rather and that having begun in the spirit we cannot be made perfect in the flesh it's not possible help us to not even try thank you lord for in jesus name we have prayed amen so thank you so much for joining um yes you can get the recording in b2ly episode journey Share with your friends. Share it with anyone who asks you any funny question about Galatians or keeping the law. Um, yes. I would see you all. I love you too. I would see you all um, next week, Saturday, 10 a.m. EST. Have a great day, guys. Bye.